0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is a Literary Studies podcast and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the channel. Today I will be speaking with Dr. David Golston. David uh, Golston and his colleague Amy Tigner edited a collection of essays, culinary Shakespeare, staging food and drink in early modern England. Hello, David. Hi. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me here.
0: Before we discuss uh, the collection of essays, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, So, I'm a professor of English at York University in Toronto, in Canada, and uh, I work on several different areas of literature, including Shakespeare, which is what my dissertation is in, Shakespeare and Renaissance studies, uh, contemporary poetry, I'm also a poet and uh, food studies. And most of my focus also, uh, I also work on ecology. And most of my focus for the last several years in my research has been trying to figure out the links between literary studies, food studies, and ecology and eco-criticism. Uh, so this, uh, this book comes directly out of that, uh, that
0: thinking. So your interests are kind of interdisciplinary. Exactly, yes. So, uh, before again, before we um, discuss the collection, would you uh, tell us a little bit about this inter- inter- interdisciplinary approaches to literature at the contemporary stage? Because it's kind of a very popular trend. Yes. Um, when I first got interested in
1: food, it was as an undergraduate, and my advisor, I had a wonderful advisor who said, you know, you probably shouldn't go into food studies because they'll think of you as the food guy and you'll be you'll be forced into this interdisciplinary situation. Whereas you want to be serious. You want to show yourself to be a real literary scholar. So I said, OK, OK. And I started planning all sorts of uh, uh, dissertation ideas around originality and translation, which I'm also very interested in. But at that point, was, it was, that was very clear that that was literary studies. And then about halfway through my Ph.D., my advisor in my Ph.D. said, you know what? Why don't you do food? You love it. You're excited about it. Interdisciplinarity is all the rage. It'll be great. So in those few years between uh, undergrad and grad, the, the climate had really shifted around interdisciplinarity. And I'm very happy that it has moved in that direction because I think, you know, the whole point of literary studies is it's about life. It's about culture. It's about the way in which we operate in all areas of our world. And what literature does is produce a kind of imaginative map of that world. It enters into the realm of the imagination and connects it to the realm of reality. So if you're not talking about everything, then you're not giving literature its full due. So I think literature is always automatically interdisciplinary and specifically food studies is uh a category of experience that has only recently begun to be taken seriously as something that, hey, you know, we do it every day. <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're lucky, if we're in a privileged uh, place, we'll, uh, you know, encounter food probably at least three times a day, probably more. And that, that very fact of the quotidian interaction between ourselves and our world through food, has got to be important and it's got to be able to be theorized in intelligent ways. And not just by scientists, but also by people who think about the imagination and how, how we relate to it. So I think literary studies is perfectly poised to enter that realm of interdisciplinarity. I just, um, my fear is that, you know, as with any trend, it kind of gets pumped up and then it disappears. And this I think is not, the relationship between literature and food studies is not just a passing fad. It's a really deep issue. If you look into any uh, era of uh, literary history, you find writing that is very passionately concerned with our relationship to our own bodies through eating and through our environment, through, uh, through what we eat and how we eat it. So I would hope that This wouldn't be something that would just fade out. Now that I sort of happen to have stumbled on it when it's just getting hot, I don't want it to suddenly cool off. So hopefully it won't. Yeah. It will remain serious.
0: Yeah, but for decades it was kind of a cliche. When we talk about literature, we're talking about some aesthetic issues. Um, but on the other hand, food is also some, some sort of, uh, aesthetic, um, engagement as well. And I think that your collection demonstrates that very well. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, uh, how this project originated. Was it your initial interest in culinary Shakespeare or maybe some other culinary interests, um, preceded that, uh, this, this project?
1: Uh, Well, they definitely happened simultaneously. My co-editor, Amy Tigner, is a classmate of mine from graduate school. And when we were in our first year of graduate school, I actually can't remember. I think she was in the, uh, we, we, I think we both took a class on food studies. It was the first one that had been offered in uh, the English department at Stanford. And, uh, if she wasn't in that class, then then we were certainly talking about these issues together immediately. Her interest in her dissertation was in gardening and uh, the environment. And you can see how gardening can easily turn into uh, cookery. She became interested in what happens when you take the garden and you bring it into the kitchen. So for years, we had been talking about our shared interests in food, and she was also a Shakespearean. So Our um, ideas really developed together, our interest in women's writing. We're both uh, very strongly interested in recipes and how uh, early modern women uh, worked as writers and how we can think of them and theorize them as part of the literary tradition. Um, And uh, after we had both sort of, you know, finished our books and we're moving on to the next project, our first books, uh, we started talking about running panels and seminars together at conferences that might explore the intersection between Shakespeare and food a little more directly. So we put together a couple of panels and a couple of seminars at major conferences in our field and started sort of collecting a group of scholars who were interested in this um, topic and who were contributing to it. And after a couple of years of that, it seemed like the right time to uh, to put together a collection. So we asked those scholars and many others if they were interested in contributing to such a collection because none exists. There are, um, there are a couple. There's one collection about food in the Renaissance more broadly, um, and there are others about food in history that may have one chapter on the Renaissance, but nothing about Shakespeare. And every single... Uh, every single uh, play of Shakespeare's deals with food in some way. And there has been lots of really interesting writing about it, but it hadn't sort of reached a critical mass. It hadn't reached the point where you could say, okay, this is a field, this is a topic or a subfield at least. And this is worth exploring uh, by a larger group of scholars in a more concerted way. So we thought, well, hopefully if we do a volume like this, that will be, one impetus for scholars to really see it as a subfield that they can take seriously
0: well um, the uh, structure of the collection demonstrates how uh, conspicuous the topic of food is and actually it also demonstrates how many dimensions food uh, permeates. So, for example, uh, like there are three parts in this collection. The first one is local and global. The second one, uh, body and state. And the third one, theory and community. And even the structure itself uh, demonstrates the connection and the interconnection of those multiple dimensions which food actually uh, permeates. Um, Would you uh, make a couple of comments on this structure uh, and on this um kin's presence of food in this collection and probably, well, you already mentioned a couple of words about food and Shakespeare's plays, but maybe uh, just um, some more information about that.
1: Sure, sure. Um, It's funny you mentioned the structure because we went back and forth about how to structure the, the book for a long time. And our initial instinct was to structure it as a meal, appetizers, main course, dessert, that kind of thing. And that sort of uh, ended up in a vestigial way in the fact that the last essay is a kind of capstone afterward type essay called Room for Dessert, which does sort of tie everything together in a dessert-like way. But we quickly discovered that, you know, I mean, it's it's a cliche to to organize writing about food as if it is a meal. Mm-hmm. And I'm always a little suspicious of that because writing about food does something different. Uh, from the ways in which meals are actually structured. It stands apart from them and analyzes them in different ways. So I was, we were both happy to move a little bit away from that and think instead about the ways that food kind of circulates in society, the, the many different ways in which we interact with food. We think of food as an object, as a substance that's on our plates that was originally an animal or a plant in the ground or on the ground, etc., and then we, it, we have a sort of one-way um, one relationship with it, right? The food, the, the creature appears on our plate, we eat it, it goes into our body, it's excreted, we're done, we move on to the next one. Whereas in fact, food is less, I think, an object than it is a relationship. It's a way of articulating and experiencing in a kind of physical, material way our relationship to other people through the table and through meal interactions, things like that, um, to the, uh, to the animals and plants around us, to the environment, to ideas about our relationship to other things and, and, uh, animals and people. So it's much more sort of, uh, much more complex and fluid than thinking about food as a singular object. And a lot of wonderful scholars have written about this, that we should really start pushing ourselves more to think about eating rather than food, to think about the act and the interactions therein than the physical fact of the thing on our plates. So we try to suggest that that's what Shakespeare is also doing in in those uh, headings and in those groupings, that really the first three chapters of the book are focused very much on questions of trade, questions of consumerism, of interaction between England and other uh, countries, nation states, and as well as other kinds of groups. So it made sense to think of that as a kind of, even as a kind of colonial and post-colonialist, colonialist category. So we called it local and global because all of these are, are interested in a sort of national and, and international, uh, way in which food traces various uh, roots and connections. Uh, And then we also noticed that there was a group of essays that was coalescing under the question of how the individual body is related to the larger cultural paradigm in which that body sits. Um, So in other words, the relationship between us as individuals and our um, uh, larger um, group and community, our state, our nation, um and so so it seems to make sense to to think about that group as talking through ways in which the body and the culture or the body and the the state operate um, uh, sometimes in tandem and sometimes antagonistically as is always the case in shakespeare um, and we 've also found certainly in our own research and also in the research that uh, these wonderful scholars in this uh, um, collection have discovered that whenever Shakespeare talks about food, he's always also talking about theater. Everything, you know, everything in Shakespeare's plays is in some ways a meta-commentary on the theater itself. And food is no exception. In fact, food is one of the hallmark ways in which Shakespeare thinks about theater because the banquet itself, the meal itself, is a form of theater, and it always has been. It is a performance. So Shakespeare's fascinated by either creating banquets on stage as he does, maybe, I mean, possibly most famously or most obviously in Macbeth, where in the middle of the play, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth stage this grand banquet that's going to uh, sort of consolidate their power. And instead of that happening, uh, Macbeth starts seeing Banquo's ghost sit down at the table. He freaks out. Lady Macbeth has to kind of cover everything up and then gets angry at him afterwards. And you know that that's the beginning of the end for the Macbeths at that point. So banquets usually play a really important theatrical role in the ways in which um, uh, Shakespeare's plays are structured. And even if there aren't banquets on stage, there are lots of references to banquets in a lot of the plays. So we thought it made sense to kind of close the book by thinking about the way in which Shakespeare thinks about the relationship between theater and food and eating and drinking. Um, so theater and community sort of was the natural way of, of connecting those last essays.
0: So uh, I, I believe um, you stayed somewhere uh, it's in the introduction. And I believe that was page three. Um, there was a statement uh, for Shakespeare. The culinary is primary. Could you decipher that uh, statement for us? <laughs>
1: Sure, in some ways it's a bit of a radical statement if you look at the history of Shakespeare criticism, which Mm -hmm. uh, tends to relegate food to the background. But that's because the history of criticism in general tends to relegate food to the background and to think about food as a kind of secondary, less important thing. um, I think this actually goes all the way back to Plato, where uh, Plato says in... In the Gorgias, Gorgias, Socrates is um, debating with his uh, interlocutors and he says, you know, can't we agree that, that eating and drinking are sort of, you know, gross bodily things, that what we should really be focusing on is philosophy? And everybody says, oh, yeah, 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 Socrates, we agree with you. And that theme is throughout Plato and to a lesser extent in Aristotle. And I think that all of Western culture has taken that as a cue to think of food as a kind of secondary, oh, we wish we didn't have to do that all the time so that we could just spend our lives thinking. It's really about the great mind-body dualism that we've been spending a lot of time talking about for the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. Um, and only recently, as that dualism has been re-evaluated over the, you know over the past several decades, have we started to think of food as a more serious uh, and fundamental and theorizable, you know, as philosophically important category in our lives? And so I think, you know, Shakespeare studies is always interested in trying to figure out uh, how to how to take what's in the cultural air and uh, relate it to Shakespeare. And I think this is one of those cases where the relationship actually turns out to be very clear that while for many years we've been thinking, oh, food, that's the secondary thing in Shakespeare. When you start to look, every Shakespeare play has uh, has characters talking directly about food, about eating, tons and tons of culinary metaphors throughout all the plays, often there's, there's food staged in the plays. Although interestingly, less, there's, there's less staged food in Shakespeare than there is in some of his contemporaries like Ben Johnson, for example, because of that, even when critics who are very serious about looking at food in the plays talk about food, they tend to sort of say, well, Shakespeare's not as interested in this as say Johnson is or Middleton. So, um, uh So, Shakespeare tends to be seen as secondary, but in fact, again, once you start looking at these plays, you start to see uh, all sorts of interesting ways of thinking through the question of food in the plays and the question of eating, also of drinking. And in fact, there are several essays uh, in the book that at least touch on, circle around, and two of them directly talk about Falstaff in the Henry IV plays and the way in which. Falstaff is identified so completely in our cultural imagination with drinking, with being a drunkard. He loves his sack. He has these beautiful uh, payons to sack, these uh, uh, lovely speeches about how wonderful sack is, and sack is a kind of uh, uh, imported wine in the period. And uh, um, people tend to gloss over that, but in fact... You know, And they think about that as just an adjunct to his character. But if you think of it as a major part of his character, then as some of the critics in this volume have shown, you start to open up all sorts of interesting questions about trade, about addiction, about the relationship between drinking and speaking, about the relationship between uh, drunkenness and festivity and theater. And it turns out that that uh, material phenomenon and metaphor of Sack Is absolutely crucial to the way that Henry the Fourth plays think of themselves and think of you know uh, build themselves through their characters.
0: So this collection presents uh, food as an element that participates in the construction of the individuality or of the individual but it also connects food to the construction of the nation. And uh, some assays tie food to Englishness or to the uh, nationality, uh, nationhood um, uh, construction or uh, fluidity to some extent as well. So um, could you you tell us a little bit more about this connection between food and the national and the political and food and the uh, nation construction?
1: Sure, yeah. It's... um uh, I think there's a very deep connection between food and nationhood. Uh, and several of the critics, not just uh, the ones in part two, also in part one, I think, draw this out. Because I think um, it's it's very central that people are going to think about identifying themselves in relation to uh, um, the food they eat and then in a kind of national relationship too. And we've uh I mean I think in contemporary terms we talk a lot about the ways in which for example in immigrant groups um keep uh, uh some of the things that they hold on to most tightly are their culinary traditions and they associate them very strongly with the places that they've come from or from displaced or been displaced from. Um Shakespeare is also working within that kind of national context in which food is very closely related to nation, but sometimes in surprising ways. So um, uh, in the lead essay in the volume, Peter Parland writes about, and this is uh, Henry Fourth again, um, he's not writing about Falstaff, he's writing about uh, Prince Hal, who becomes King Henry V., and thinking about how Hal seems very concerned about the question of what he drinks and what he drinks is small beer, which is this cheap beer. Um, And beer is actually originally a Dutch uh, import into into Britain, although of course we now think of beer as being iconically British, Um, but it also has a history and it's a history of uh, transformation and fluidity and movement. And so, um The way in which Hal thinks about his relationship to beer is a very complex one and has all sorts of things to do with his uh uh his feelings about what it's going to mean for him to take over as king when in fact he's been a kind of rebellious you know prodigal son kind of kid who's hanging out with all these tough guys and and uh uh lower classes and and uh, everyone has sort of his father has written him off as someone who might not be able to assume the kingship, and the way in which he talks about beer and other foodstuffs kind of negotiates between his relationship with the lower classes and his relationship with um, kingship and the monarchy so it's all about how he places himself in terms of a British identity, not just an individual
0: mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. I was particularly fascinated by one of the articles, and that article was discussing oranges um in Shakespeare's, yeah, um, I can't see that um um assay right now. that's
1: chapter three that's oh, Peter Canelo says, so many strange dishes, food, love, and politics, and much ado about nothing.
0: Yeah, and I was fascinated by this approach uh, that highlights the shifting boundaries between the local and the international, the local and the foreign, and uh, where the um, um, Englishness actually is presented in the light of um, shifting nature.
1: That's a very interesting essay, too, because rather than uh, just think about how food interacts in the British context, context, he's pointing out that there's also an Italian context Mm -hmm. for food that Shakespeare is also sensitive to, and this certainly happens in other plays as well. So he's very interested in the fact that oranges keep showing up in Much Ado About Nothing in ways that don't seem to be... Uh, necessary. They don't seem to be motivated by the text. There seems an extra focus on oranges, and why is that? And so he traces oranges back through um, uh, through Sicily and through North Africa, which is where um, Britain was getting many of its oranges from, if not all. Well, they could grow oranges in Britain, but it was a real novelty. Most so most oranges came from Spain, from uh, from Sicily, from North Africa. And the way in which oranges he shows gets used in Much About Nothing has a much ado about nothing has a lot to do with the way in which foreignness is mobilized and thought about in that play. And the relationship between the Italian context and the British uh, audience is, um, is sort of thought through on the level of the culinary as well as on the level of the political and, and uh, cultural and psychological.
0: So uh, early in the conversation, you mentioned that a table can be considered as a stage itself and kitchen itself can be presented as a stage itself. So um, uh, in this light, uh, food can be presented as a kind of a bridge between the uh, actual life and between the play, between the audience and between the characters. And again, there is this collaboration of the audience and the characters of the audience and the playwright himself. Yeah, very much. Uh, I think, I think that banqueting and meal mealtime,
1: st- the staging of meals in both Shakespeare and all of his uh, fellow playwrights really is a way of staging how a community forms itself and uh, uh, tries to sort of maintain itself uh, both within its own boundaries and how it creates boundaries with others. Um and I think that boundaries with others is also an important part um mm-hmm. in the sense that I think we in modern culture may idealize meals a little bit by thinking there's a, all this focus on there's lots of research, very good research on how family meals contribute to psychological stability and all sorts of things and yes, there's no question that um uh that meals as basic cultural and psychological units as interactions are extremely important for humans. And they have been for, uh, thousands of years. It's one of the things we do best is sit around and eat together, which is very rare for other animals. Um, but there's also of course that dark side to eating together, um, which is that, uh, it, whenever one community is formed, another community is, is kept out, right? So who's not invited to the table? And this question of who's not invited or who is invited with a kind of um, sinister, uh, with a kind of ulterior motive, is very present in Shakespeare's plays, especially obviously in the tragedies, but even in the comedies. So, one of the, uh, one of the articles that I think draws this out very nicely is Douglas Lanier's article on, called Cynical Dining and Timon of Athens where he talks about what he calls the kind of humanist banquet tradition, which uh, other um, scholars have elaborated very beautifully. Michel Genere uh, in um, French wrote about the way in which the humanist banquet takes shape uh, in the centuries leading up to Shakespeare. Uh, And Lanier talks about how the humanist version of this banquet is a very positive one in a very sort of, uh, harmonious, uh, place in which both the intellect and the, the culinary aspects, the material aspects of the body are fed. Shakespeare gets a hold of that, um, humanist banquet metaphor and tears it apart. He is very, um, uh, You know, he's, I think of Shakespeare as a deeply skeptical writer. And so anything that he gets from humanism that seems to be positive, he's going to pick apart and analyze and see what's going on with it. So Lanier shows how in Titus Andronicus, in The Taming of the Shrew, and finally in Timon of Athens, uh, uh, Shakespeare takes this model of the banquet and turns it in such a way that it shows as much the divisiveness within a community and the kind of antagonisms that appear between characters and between ideologies, between political uh, motivations and between basic philosophical points of view as it does help to sort of form a community. Um, And although he focuses on time in Athens, ultimately I'm actually writing an article now that's somewhat based on is uh, Lanier's work about taming of the shrew in which that play is so interesting because it creates all sorts of divisions through food, but it also ends with a banquet that tries to pull the community together. So the banquet has this kind of double function of breaking apart and possibly healing. And I think that's the, only, well, there are other plays of Shakespeare's in which he meditates on sort of both sides, the double-edged uh, quality of the banquet and feasting.
0: So, speaking about those who are invited to the table and those who are not, we can also talk about those who are remembered and those who are forgotten. So, and food also participates in this memory projects. And there is one essay that actually talks about this um, connection between food and memory. Um, I think that that's part three, um, chapter eight: feasting and forgetting. So. Um, would, would you just make a couple of comments about uh, food and memory in terms not only remembering, but in terms of forgetting as well? Yeah, um, yeah that's a wonderful essay by Tobias Doring um, about uh, Twelfth Night and the way in which uh, Twelfth Night conjures,
1: conjures various sorts of food and drink, um, such as pickled herring. Um, but there are lots of foodstuffs in Twelfth Night, both in order to um, create memorial connections and also in a strange way to erase things and to forget things one thing I mean when we think about food and memory, we often think about sort of our our deep connections to childhood right Food can bring up such powerful um, memories of of eating those foods when we were kids and um also, as I was saying, we were talking about national connections and immigrant connections to food of of one's uh, uh, native country, perhaps, so there are lots of ways in which food is seen to be really deeply um, connected with memory but we're also talking when we talk about eating, we 're also talking about drinking, and one of the whole points of drinking in modern society and you know by modern i mean going back hundreds of years. Is to forget, is, you know, Mm -hmm. you drink yourself into oblivion. Mm -hmm. You drink in order to forget your problems and just be happy and festive. So there's also that side of, of, uh, of consumption that Mm -hmm. we, that we don't really think about those two things together. That food taken broadly as eating and drinking, both is about remembering and about forgetting. And what Doring does in that essay, which is so lovely, is think about the ways in which this maps onto religious ideologies of the period. (laughs) It's certainly um, uh, been discussed at length that Twelfth Night has a lot to do with um, thinking about a Catholic past for England, right? That England by the time Shakespeare's writing is entirely Protestant. And by entirely, I mean, the government is Protestant. Um, But of course there are lots of um, Catholics still in England. There are lots of Catholic traditions There are kind of holdovers. In some ways, the theater itself is a Catholic tradition, since uh, in Shakespeare's childhood, he would have seen Corpus Christi cycle plays, medieval morality plays that would have been based very much on a Catholic way of approaching the question of um, religious belief, and that gets phased out or stamped out, depending on which context you're talking about. And then is sort of replaced by the professional theater. So even the body of the theater itself somehow has this kind of Catholic remnant in it. And what Doring shows is that Twelfth Night kind of goes back and forth between soliciting that Catholic past and reminding us of it and then denying it and forgetting it and sort of erasing it, pushing it away. And does throw, does so through these festive acts of eating and drinking. So it can really cut both ways. That's one of the, you know, when I was talking about food and drink, the culinary being so fluid. That's partly what I mean is that mm-hmm. it can it can take on all sorts of roles within a society.
0: So culinary representations in Shakespeare are really fascinating. But would you uh, say that they are available for staging?
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean you know, from a directorial perspective, staging banquets and eating is one of the most interesting uh, things to do in a, in a play. Right. I mean, it's always, I find whenever I see a production of Macbeth, for example, Mm -hmm. what's most interesting or one of the most interesting things is seeing how the banquet is staged. And I saw a recent production where the, The banquet was left on stage during the intermission and the witches picked over it while people were uh, milling about and sort of popping grapes in their mouth and things. So there's a really visceral aspect to food that can be very interesting. But of course, it's also dangerous because actors don't want to have to do things that they can't fully control Mm -hmm. and putting food in your mouth. Obviously, you can't talk while you're eating. So you have to block that out in some way. But also, you know, who knows? You can cough, you can choke. There are all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, questions and uh, variables that come up when you actually integrate food into staging. But I think that's more than offset by the fact that in theater, we want an experience that feels real, that feels immediate. And there are very few things that feel more immediate than watching an actor eat on stage or drink on stage. You're so aware of their body. You're so aware of their physicality and space and you become aware of your own physicality as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare and his contemporaries are so interested in eating and drinking because it does place the body in a kind of forcibly material context in relationship to the, to the audience, so I think it's wonderful for directors. And often, I see directors put food in where there actually isn't any in the mm-hmm. script. And I think that's you know they have uh, they have people eat where there are no directions to eat. And um, I would do that too if I were if I were <laughs> directing these plays.
0: So what Shakespeare's uh, play offers the uh, most lavish engagements with food? I know that we can find food probably in every single one, but uh, just to to have the taste of Shakespeare's play in terms of culinary uh, engagements, which one would you recommend?
1: Oh, I don't know. They're all, almost all of them have mm-hmm. so much in them. Mm-hmm. And, To tell you the truth for whatever reason, whatever dark reason in my soul, I get attracted to the ones that are the most negative Mm -hmm. aspects of of, uh, portrayals of food. Um, The one in some ways I'm most interested in, although in some ways it has very little eating in it, uh, is The Merchant of Venice, which is a play that stages a deep conflict between Jews and Christians, partly around the question of food. Uh, people don't necessarily always notice that when Shylock uh, is first introduced, he's one of the first things that uh, Bassanio, the, uh, uh, one of the Christian characters, asks Shylock is, um, will he come to figure out the details of their business agreement over dinner? And Shylock responds, no, there's no way, I'm not going to eat with you. And the implication is that it's because Shylock keeps kosher, so he's not going to sit at a Christian table. Now, the fact that Shakespeare's uh, um, audience would have gotten that reference and would have understood what the kosher laws were and what kept Christians and Jews apart at the table seems to me really interesting. But what's even more interesting is the fact that lots of meals are talked about during the um Uh, during the play, but never staged. So you hear about people going to meals with each other. Shylock does end up going to a meal with Bassanio, which is really weird since he said he wouldn't. And uh, all sorts of other characters say, oh, let's have a meal. And then somebody says, you know, somebody uh, declines it uh, or says no. Other meals happen offstage. So there's all this constant talking about food. There are all these references to pork and to doves. There's a dish of doves on the stage, but how do you stage a dish of doves? Like what, you know, that's not like biting into an apple. That's a kind of weird thing to put on the stage. So I just find the play endlessly strange around the question of food. It's It's not comfortable, none of it is comfortable, but clearly Shakespeare is so interested in using food to get at all of these things that are deeply uncomfortable in the play. And I think the play is one of Shakespeare's most disturbing in the sense that very little is resolved, very little is um, seen to be okay. There are all these emotions that are never sort of sort of understood fully, even by the characters themselves. And how fascinating that Shakespeare's using uh, uh, food to kind of enter into all of those, um, all those questions. So I guess I would say the least likely play for talking about food is the one that I love to talk about food in the most.
0: Well, I find this collection absolutely fascinating. Um, I think that it opens up... uh an absolutely new dimension for reading Shakespeare and on the other hand it also connects Shakespeare to modern times of course it's not it's not that uh, well necessary to do that but because we all know that uh, Shakespeare is fathomless and we can read uh, Shakespeare many times and we will discuss it and, uh, and we will d- discover new things but uh, on the other hand this uh, culinary dimension really puts him in some different light and it adds some new other uh, aspects which probably Probably were dismissed or were some uh, some guys, uh, or were um, ignored uh, at some uh, stages, and I think uh, the uh, the last the closing uh, chapter of this uh, um, collection somehow ties uh, Shakespeare to modern times. Room for dessert, sugar Shakespeare, and the dramaturgy of a dwelling, and uh, there are some mentioning of uh, uh, some modern technologies in that um, essay as well. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true that,
1: uh, you know, I, I, I certainly hope that this, uh, that this book helps kind of galvanize a new, uh, way of thinking about Shakespeare. I mean, there's nothing really new in Shakespeare, as you say, it's all been said, but it's about reframing and it's about connecting, uh, the context of um, Shakespeare's time to the context of our own time and thinking about ways in which the two can, um, can have a conversation, right? So I very much hope, and that's partly why I, I do really like that final essay because Julia Lepton is really so adept at connecting um, contemporary design technologies and culinary technologies with, uh, uh, with Shakespearean technologies and thinking about the ways in which there are, you know, very distinct connections, very, uh, powerful ways of thinking across that time gap to uh, uh, to how there's a kind of um, humanist, post-humanist development mm-hmm. of ways of thinking about food that start with Shakespeare's time, I think. So the whole volume is attempting to say, basically, hey, there's this really interesting thing, both in Shakespeare studies and lar- in, more largely in literary studies, mm-hmm that we have only just begun to think through and we in Shakespeare studies want to be on the forefront of that thinking. And we're showing that, yeah, we, we have several essays in here. There could be many more. There are many more. I know wonderful people uh, who have been writing on this topic now. It seems like it's finally reaching a point where we can uh, think of it as something that's, uh, that's really valuable to make a concerted effort to make some connections that have not yet been made mm-hmm. about our own world and its relationship to Shakespeare.
0: Do you have any other culinary projects in mind? Uh, the project I'm working on right now is
1: uh, a book that takes some of the ideas about um, the relationship between humans at the table, which we've been talking in this, uh, 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 in this interview about um, the culinary we haven't used the word commensality or the commensal, which is the word that social scientists use to talk about the relationships between humans among humans at the table. And so my next book is going to be specifically about uh, the way in which commensality works in literary uh, texts all across um, uh, genres and periods. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with how Plato got us into this mess (laughs) and moved. Move up to contemporary discourses about um, uh, about food and writing that were are that are helping shape policy now. So it's it's very much based in this work, but it hopefully will open it up to some some clear questions that that broaden the, uh, broaden the state of the field.
0: Well, good luck on your new project. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you so much for this fascinating fascinating collection, and thank you so much for a wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.